and welcome to the Lab Radio Hour brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with Francesco Pacifico about his new novel, The Women I Love. That's right. One of the things that I loved about this novel and that I felt a little jealous about is all the Italian cooking. <laughs> did you notice that? I, you know, I did. And I thought, I wonder if, if he even noticed it or if it was just, you know, like every day float some jetsam to him. Like, oh, I sat down and then we ate this delicious soup and the a melon and blah, blah, blah. Or if he was making a point of describing the food in a way that made it sound so scrumptious. Or if it's just like average food in Italy, you know, I, I can't tell. I know. I know. I couldn't tell either. It seemed really nice. There was like a lot of just like casual fresh fish eating and and like glasses of white wine and I am sitting in cold New York with some takeout felt really really sad about it it was a nice sensuous aspect of the book it was and there's a lot of sensual a lot of sensuousness <laughs> in this book I mean as the title might suggest but I yeah I was excited also to have Francesco come come on a show hosted by two women to talk about a book about a male writer who was writing about all of the women in his life yeah. And who is not, as we kind of get to in the interview, I don't think this is a very likable character. No, he's, I agree. He's in your subject, it's a first person. So you hear his thoughts about women and, and uh, he doesn't always come across as such a great guy. Let's just say that. Yes. I think that's putting it kindly in some ways. <laughs> yeah. So I do think Francesco is a, was a good sport to come on and subject himself to a little roasting by the two of us. But I think the conversation was also very interesting and talked about a lot of stuff, me too, and class and owning up to your privilege and your power. So I'm glad we did it. Yeah, let's listen. Let's do it. Today we're joined from Italy by the writer, editor, and translator, Francesco Pacifico. He's the author of the novels, The Story of My Purity, as well as Class. He's also a frequent contributor to La Repubblica and N Plus One. He is the founder and senior editor of the literary magazine, Il Tascabile. He has also translated the work of a number of English and American writers, including F. Scott Fitzgerald, Kurt Vonnegut, Henry Miller, Ralph Ellison, as well as many others. His new novel is called The Woman I Love which follows an editor and poet named Marcello, who is trying to write a novel about the women in his life. The relationships he explores are sexual and romantic. There is a young editor, Eleonora, with whom he's having an affair, Barbara, his girlfriend, and later his wife, as well as platonic and familiar. He writes about his sister, Irene, as well as his mother. The book is about love and sex, as well as gender, power, and literature. How well can we know each other even our most intimate partners. Francesco, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Francesco, I wanted to hear, it seems that there is a kind of a conceptual framework. It's a novel, but it's also a novel that is being addended by its author and notes are made. And tell us what you were trying to accomplish in writing this book. I was actually trying to make the most of a big failure Not so much an existential failure, maybe, but a literary failure. I was trying to write a book soon after getting married with my wife, who hasn't divorced me after the book came out. At the time, I was in love with 
20th century Japanese literature. And I wanted to try my hand at a kind of minimalist sort of novel about emotions, strong emotions. And my wife read the first 50 pages and she panned it. She said the male character was the saddest person ever and she didn't see herself in the, in the female character. So it was a huge failure and I was very interested because we were and we are now more than we were very loved. And I was completely failing at giving a representation of our relationship. It wasn't about our relationship, but the fact that the characters were not three-dimensional was a big failure. So since literature has always been my way to cope with things, I started a conversation between Japanese literature, because that had the vibe that I was looking for, and Latin American literature. So like Borges, Alan Powell's, that kind of deconstructive literature that is deconstructive in a very playful way. Also, Zambra comes to mind among the contemporaries. So I was trying to see where I was stuck between, you know, the Latin American influences and the Japanese influences. And I realized that deconstructing the novel was a good way to not hide the big existential problem that I had discovered as my wife read the first 50 pages of the previous one. And so the way you framed it, Kate, makes sense because what happened to me was my wife is a militant feminist. She holds a feminist literary festival every year in our neighborhood. I was completely compelled by what was going on. I was interested and the way I see identity problems and political problems, I was really fascinated by the lack of understanding and the stuff that was coming out of me that was very dark. And so that's why there's no attempt at covering the traces. Actually, we have a good relationship, so I wasn't, I wasn't trying to cover anything bad. So I was able to be very nasty in the book. Like, I feel like there's like a combination in the book between writing women and writing about love. And I wonder if that, that doesn't seem necessary, I think. I think that those two things maybe can be separated from each other. You can write about women and love or love without women necessarily. So I wonder why, what it is about the link between women and love in particular that you find compelling. My take will not be very linear. I just want to say that I think that most things that a nice boy from the middle class to upper middle class, the way he's brought up, he will not know his desires. So I come from that place and I'm not very interested in that. So for example, my wife and I, when we were not married yet, the first two years of our relationship were really tough because we wanted to be a boyfriend and a girlfriend and it really collapsed in the way all other relationships collapsed. So then we came up with a solution that is as deconstructive as the novel is. We said, let's stay a little longer and see if in the failure of the boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, we can come up with something new. And we did. So what I want to say is, in terms of the question and subject matter, is that it's not so much that I'm obsessed by the relationship between observing women and observing love, but I felt that observing women was more interesting than the relationships. You don't need to obsess about how your relationship works 
when you're interested in the other person. And I feel that the sentimental education that I got wasn't conducive to interest for the woman, my interest for the woman. So in the process of writing this book, I realized that I was very interested in the woman I was living with. And I stopped obsessing about the relationship. And so it stopped being that ordeal where you never know what's going on. It was just, I realized that I don't want to get all like pop and philosophical about it, but I realized that like when you make sure that whatever she wants to say, she has managed to convey, you're not obsessed by the relationship anymore. There's not a whole economy of relationship advice anymore. You just listen to the the other person. Incidentally, because of the power structure of patriarchal society, when it's the man listening to the woman, magic, of course. So I have a very light relationship to all this because it's been a surprise and, and a blessing and fun. And while I was revising the translation, like five years had passed, because I started writing these in 2015. And it was a very tender experience to go back and read that book that I think was one of the elements that made the life that we lead now, my wife and I. So it was like gone, past. we're beyond that. But it was a nice time to collect our thoughts about stuff because of course she had a veto power over the book because it was, the challenge was, tell me when you see actual women in the book. So you say you started writing, you know, in 2015. Since then, of course, there's been this kind of sexual awareness that's come and, you know, awareness of power imbalances between men and women in Me Too. And I'm curious how that movement has surfaced in Italy and in the literary world. And then also, you know, it's addressed in the novel to some degree, but if personally it's changed the way you look at things much. Okay, the first joke is you don't flirt with women anymore, and it's fine. And I feel fine. <laughs> That's the first, the first answer. As I told you, my wife was in the process of founding this uh, literary festival that takes place yearly at a feminist bookstore in my neighborhood. So I saw its surface in time, so I don't think I was like, a genius, uh, like forecasting what was going to happen. It was just in the neighborhood before it was cool, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. And he caught up with the book because I had time enough to put the hashtags in the book. And the Italian hashtag, the woman who invented it was an editor at the magazine I found. So it was very close to me. What's the Italian hashtag? Just out of curiosity. Quella volta che, that time when... And so... It's very lame and it seems like to say we are dissatisfied with the patriarchy. It's tough that I know I shouldn't tell feminist friends, but now I'm talking to, to women in Los Angeles and I think I'm in a safe space where I can investigate this because I never say. But honestly, it's a very dissatisfying existence when you never know whether you connected with another person and you only know the people you got laid with. So it's not satisfying. It's uh, like spiritually, it's a nightmare. You never know who likes you. And I had time in the past years, I had time to discuss this with writer friends and editors, I mean, women especially. 
it's chilling when you think of the times you must have had, you must have felt a connection, but you have no idea how to feel a connection. And you were just like exchanging your power for sex or attention. And I mean, power is beautiful and it's devilish and it's wicked, but connection is also a powerful thing in life. And I'm not looking for a moral happy ending where I come off as a good person. I'm just, I just don't want my life to be very boring. And if you get laid using the same system from when you're 28 and you got your second job and all the way to when you're 65, it's not a life. I think it's not a life. And it's, uh, I wish I could say it more often. I was very bored with the whole scheme, the format. I guess that kind of brings up just because you're speaking so much about yourself, would you say that the book is very autobiographical in that the character is very much based on your own experience? I think that inventing things creates a relationship with your biography that is very dynamic. I don't think that writing my story, I didn't do like the nasty thing that is at the end of the book, but my not forcing myself upon a woman sort of deprives me of the experience of feeling very bad for that. And since I took part in a system where the end game was forcing a man upon a woman, I just wanted to try that. And I usually don't say that that was not me. Like I'm the kind of person that enjoys thinking that people would think it's sort of biographical. Like people have told me, oh, you're very brave to write that thing, that episode. And I mean, I know men that have done that to women that I love. And they're not telling it, so I'll say I did it. It must come out if you hate me. Like, when I give my answers, I know what my spiritual journey is, so I don't need to convince somebody else that I've just met, and I keep that from me. But the stuff that I make come out, I'm okay with that. It's risky. I'm never sure, like, somebody's going to like me. But it has to come out. It's form. It's the stuff itself. So... Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I'm obsessed with the idea that people conjure up a form in their head, and it's that mountain, that butte, where the aliens are going to come. And I only think in those terms, I don't like cause and effect. So there's this form, this siding, that is that form is violence, is the violence by men on women in this case, and nobody brings that up. I want to bring that up because I feel that violence, the violence runs through me. We had a, a meeting for the magazine and an editor was a woman and a dear friend of mine, a junior editor, asked me if I wanted to interview a big Italian author that is also a friend of mine about something that he's doing about San Pasolini anniversary. And I said, yeah, I might do it or she might do it because you wanted to meet him, right? And she made a face like it never happens. And I think when I tell her, you go do the interview, it can only happen because I tell that I'm the man who forced himself upon that woman. So invention helps me be whole, like take everything of a thing, of an issue that is important to me and not just cherry pick my way around it. So this is just what I'm doing. It's intuition. It's not a plan, but I can sum it up the way I did. Interesting because, yeah, Marcelo is, he's very charming. He's a very charming character, but he's not particularly likable. And there's times when he's, in fact, very cruel. 
to the women that he loves. And as you say, in the end, he does force himself on one of them. So I do think it's tricky to take responsibility for him. I understand why one might do it, but it does seem... I would not want to do that. I would not want to take Marcelo upon me because I would not want to be responsible for a person like him. So in some ways to take him on yourself is a little brave. It's not particularly, he's not a very good man in the end. No. A question that I did have about him is that, so he often, he confuses sex with power often. Mm -hmm. And there are many different kinds of power that he wields. He's not just a man. He is a wealthy man. He comes from family with money, even though he keeps fearing that he's going to end up under a bridge, he says. But, <laughs> but there's no chance of that. He's okay. He has wealth. He has education. He has a very bourgeois upbringing. And there's times in which all of these different forms of power conflict with his relationships with the women that he's with. And I was wondering about your thoughts about those forms of power, because it's not just masculine power, it's other kinds of power. Mm -hmm. So I don't think they conflict with the relationships. I think they hinder the possibility of relationship. So that's mm. why I get it back to what I was saying at the beginning after Kate's question, I think. That's exactly the point. If you don't check all those forms of power, if you don't if you don't investigate them, there's not going to be any relationship. So why all the forms of power? So my previous novel was called Class. It's the same title in Italy, Class, in English, because it had to do with the whole empire structure of power. Every Italian was going to New York and stuff like that. And it had to be about money. And people at the time, maybe the financial crisis was still in its infancy, but they rejected the idea of a novel that was really dispensing of empathy and just counting the money in the pockets of the characters. You know, like, how many houses uh, do your parents own? Are you a rentier? And, I mean, before Me Too, I needed to talk about money because nobody was saying, like, I'm a trustafarian, I'm a trust fund kid. And I... I think I come from the school of Pirandello, of the identity crisis, of the perennial identity crisis. That's my Italian heritage. And Pirandello was always writing these novels of identity crisis at the end of the Belle Epoque, you know, like the end of the European dream in a way. I've always related to that. And I always think that if I take away all these things, the money, the, like if I take it out, if I scream it out loud, like you see me, you see I'm educated, I'm privileged. And I just say, yeah, it's all this. It's like performance art. Like what is left if I take this all out? And another thing that I like to say, like when I talk to feminists, and I always confirm that all their worst assumptions on men are true. And I say, yeah, it's exactly that. Plus, and I give some insider's information. I just think like I'm going to see something at the end of this where I see who I am because we are spoiled of the ability to have an identity when we completely coincide with power. So what is the power? The power is the masculine power, money, the ability to be educated, to know the things that make you able to talk to people in a different continent. All this is power. 
I'm named Francesco. My parents gave me this name uh, from Francesco d'Assisi. And Francesco d'Assisi was the son of a rich man who just took his clothes off and just went. I'm doing a sort of literary version of this, I think. I'm just saying, you can undress me and a poor soul will be left that is guilty forever from the beginning of time. And that's it. And I'm not hiding anything. I'm complicit. I was there. It's blood money, and this is what's left, and I'm gonna die, and that's it. I think that's what's happened to me. That's what my 20 years of writing has been about. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Francesco Pacifico about his latest novel, The Women I Love. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. Neil Patel is the author of a new novel. It's called Tell Me How to Be. And Neil is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Neil, what book are you going to recommend? I am going to recommend a book called Speak No Evil. And it is by a wonderful writer named Uzodima Iwiela. And it is a queer coming-of-age story that centers around a Nigerian-American boy, a high school student, who's in the closet and his father discovers he's gay and, 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 and kind of the repercussions of that. And it's such a beautiful story about the intersection of race and sexuality. And it really resonated with me as a queer brown person. Tell me, how did you discover this book? Actually, I think I discovered it through Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Um, I follow, yeah, Bookstagram is great. Like I follow a lot of Bookstagrammers. I'm always like envious of them because they like, I don't know how they have time to read so many books like <laughs> a week. I can barely read like one book every six months. But yeah, I came across it and I found the premise was so intriguing to me because again, there's just so few queer stories in general in the literary fiction space, but also queer stories centering on queer people of color. And the character being Nigerian, I know a lot of Nigerian people in our, our cultures, Indian culture, Nigerian culture are very similar. And so I thought, oh, this would be a great book to read. And it was, it was stunning. It was really beautiful. It sounds like a great recommendation. Can you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Yes. Yes. The title is Speak No Evil. And the author's name is Uzodinma Iwiela. Perfect. Thank you so much, Neil. Thank you. We've been speaking with Neil Patel. His latest novel is called Tell Me How to Be. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Francesco Pacifico, author of The Women I Love. I was wondering how there's a there's a hint in the book that despite their privilege, the financial precarity of all these characters kind of aid to them not maturing emotionally, living still like they're in their 20s because they won't ever like amass enough money to working in their, you know, artistic professions to live at any other stage in their lives um, if they didn't have the privilege of being connected to like long lineages of families with money. So maybe you could talk about that aspect of of the novel um, and how you think that the financial status of the characters affects them emotionally. There's a lot of of tricks uh, behind that aspect. And uh, I'm very Willy Wonka-ish about that that aspect because 
So what I believe is that adulthood is an invention of capitalism and, you know, like post-medieval uh, Christianity. I don't think there's there's any, like, I read the works of Maria Montessori, the educator, that's very relevant in Italy. And she considers children, these little men and women, that if you just let them bring out their ability to connect with the world at their pace, they would just be like adults, only like we're rushing them. So there's no such thing as a, as a child, and, and, and hence there's no such thing as, uh, as an adult, I think. And so I, there's a lot of playing and a lot of uh, trickery and machinery in, in those parts of the book where I want to hide a lot of something, you know, like funky that will be unpacked in time. Because I think that we are blinded by the idea that there's this Freudian mythical accomplishment of adulthood. Whereas I realize that when I'm able to listen to people, I'm a perfectly an adult. And there's no such thing as becoming the Monty Python character uh, from the Ministry of Silly Walks. Not, so I'm really playing with that level. I don't think I'm not a moralist that thinks that people should like grow up and get a hairdo and 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 do some version of the healthy thing that a grown up should do. I think that it's super unfair that a couple of generations have been like tasked with uh, no, they've been just scolded just because they they were born after some a bunch of financial collapses i think it's completely insane that millennials like feel guilty for a financial collapse that they were they were too young to contribute to and so i think that's a, that's bullshit and i think like when i read what i write about money like 10 years later I realized that I've been playing and I just want to see like not enough time has passed and I want to see what I've, I'm hiding stuff that I'm not even aware of because like my father really destroyed me and my sister. Less, just, just like talking about stuff like we weren't able to do anything just because he had money. And it turned out not to be true, but in a way where, like, for example, I sort of hide the the actual reality of my literary life to my parents because I enjoy it too much and, and I don't want to kill him by letting, letting him understand that I, it's an actual world where I'm a, an adult and I have responsible relationships and I have junior editors and I have people that want, want to work with me. Like, my sister was completely destroyed. Uh, he he always said that she was lazy and wasn't able to to do anything. Like we're just like the silver juice guy and his father, poor man. Just that kind of thing. That's insane. Succession, you know. And I want to say yeah. that I, after succession, I can say it out loud. I've always been criticized because I don't stress the empathy part of books, but I just think that the bourgeoisie and men especially, we're like. Our hands are dirty and we don't deserve the kind of empathy that the bourgeois novel conjured up for the bourgeois people. I don't think we deserve it. We have to go past that. Literature is so fun. I've translated Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, one of the most fun book ever, a, a completely unhinged imagination, a new form of realism. 
There's no need for empathy. He was such a cruel writer, just a genius and a fantastic human being. Like, I want to go past this obsession with consoling guilty people. <laughs> and I want to create a different kind of lightness, perennial repentance and, and, and connection. Well, actually, that, that leads to my next question, because at the very end of this book, Marcelo is living with his sister, Irene, and he there's a brief passage about being saved. And he doesn't want to say that his sister has saved him, but um, and he talks a little bit about the, the complicated relationship between women, men, and and being saved and being saved by a woman. So it's interesting to hear you say, like, uh, you know, for uh, repentance forever. Is there is there a point at which someone is saved? Are we ever done? Are, are we done? Is is Mar? No. 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 Thank you. No. Sorry, I was uh, uh, was here to talk because I lo- I love the question. Yeah. I think, and especially. I mean, now that we are in a conversation, we've created a small building of words and and sentences, and we can discuss about that. I it's interesting that I'm an Italian and you're American uh, people, because I think that we must come up with uh, some moral thought that comes from a conversation between different civilizations. We mm-hmm. come from the same civilization, but we're very different about that. So I really like a lot of dear friends of mine are American. Mark Crot of the, the publisher at M Plus One is, has been my editor for class and we're really brothers now. So I enjoy uh, conversations about morality uh, across the pond because it's a good way to uh, be uh, warmly relativistic about it. So I have a feeling that when Americans talk about like, does it ever end? Can we just repent and move on? I come from a Catholic country. We have uh, the, the, we can repent and move on. Like we have the, the actual uh, format for that. And I feel that the moving on cannot be like, you cannot choose to move on. Like you have to go the other way. Like Jesus Christ, when he goes and uh, and talks to future Peter, I don't remember his name before it was Peter, and he's a he's a fisherman, and Jesus uh, like uh, asks him to follow him, but he has to convince him in a way, and so he says, "Throw your nets, your fish nets, to the right side, which is the wrong side. You don't do that." I was told by a priest uh, ages ago, and. Um, you should throw your fishnets in a counterintuitive way. You cannot aim at salvation because it's going to become cosmetic salvation. So that's why I throw myself in the wrong direction. Because you cannot just say, hey, guys, I'm a man, but I understand women. It's just so, so unfair. You have to go through, uh, through fire and you... You must fear that you will not come out alive. I, I was just going to say, I think it's um, it's not just a one-time kind of, you know, repent, repent. It's a long-term way of uh, trying as hard as you can to see things that are, were established, were that, were that you were born into, that you thought you understood differently. And I think something of this book is that looking at the this man's point of view of women, we see that it's threatening to see women 
as a other than objects of desire or, um, you know, uh, the mother figure who will love without having to take care of herself. For instance, Daniele, the, the, his sister-in-law who has all these children and admits to being bored, you know, that's a, that can be a very frightening idea that a, a woman who takes care of children might not love doing it. Yeah. So I, 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 so I wonder uh, in the book, if, if you think that the character does change his idea of what women are if they become less women and more human beings or does he end you know seeing them in a similar way that's so interesting when when people try to gauge my writing career is they can say they have no idea where i'm going because i'm a man and it's not necessary to box me in a category. That doesn't happen with women. So since we assume that the author of the book, the narrator of the book is the actual author of the book is Marcello. He is there investigating how his need to put them in a category keeps flaking away and he begins to see a void when he, he, he chases the identity of these women, the way you're capable to see the void, the possibility in a man's life. And we do that all the time. Like there's no need for me to project if I'm gonna be an accomplished author or if I'm gonna be a hermit. I'm a man and I'm free to do whatever I want. The writing exercise that uh, Marcello takes on and that I took on, is an attempt to get to the point where the women are as full of potential as the men are. So the thing that I write where like, I cannot put them in a category anymore. So what are they? They're like men, they're potential. That's why you don't put them in a category. And Marcello takes the story up to a point where we see that Daniela, the sister-in-law, who was a supposed failure, manages to muster up the, the strength to do something that she wanted to do. And apparently she, she's succeeding. And he writes the book long enough to see that thing through. Also, the formerly estranged sister comes up with this whole grown-up personality that he didn't know of, and he has time to see that thing through. And to see, I think that this is the most important thing, that towards the end of the book, he starts seeing the interconnections, the connections, the, the warmth between these women, uh, these characters. So like the, the, the estranged sister, the wife, uh, uh, the sister-in-law, they all come together in a slapstick sort of way, and he sees this. So what I want to say is, I realized that, for example, men, when they review this book, are, in, are really uncomfortable because they cannot just, you know, like represent for uh, poor Marcello who was, a, was, a, was, a, was an asshole. But actually, I think that the identity of Marcello lies more in what he sees and decides to put on paper than in what he does. And I think that we should stop obsessing with that kind of cosmetic change and just 
try to see like what is a man able to see about women? Is he able to to understand the narrative of potential in a woman's life, or will he just stop seeing when he gets bored? I don't get bored. This much I know. I may be an asshole, but I know like these eyes have seen, and I just I think it's an interesting thing. Okay. Well, this seems like a good place to end. <laughs> we can all admit that we might be assholes. Um, <laughs> but at least we are not bored. We've been talking to Francesco Pacifico. His new novel is called The Women I Love. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Vladen.